Lord, you are worthy of worship. We thank you that the way has been made for us to be with you forever through Jesus Christ, through his death and resurrection, that by faith in him we can be with you. We thank you, God. We pray that you would fill us with the Holy Spirit now as we look into your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we're walking through a sermon series here at Cornerstone through the book of Revelation. We're, we're getting pretty far through it, so again, uh, it might be a great time for you to read through this book on your own, study it on your own, and see what the Holy Spirit says to you as you're reading. But today, we get to talk about the second coming of Jesus Christ. This is what we Christians have looked forward to for 2,000 years. Jesus came once. He came to bear our sins, to pay the penalty that we could never pay off. He died for us. He rose again and ascended into heaven. But we are told many, many times in the Bible that he is coming again. And we're at that place now in Revelation 19 where we read about that second coming that will happen at some point. Now, in the passage we're going to read today, the second coming of Jesus is spoken of as a battle. In fact, the way that it's spoken of in Revelation 19 kind of reminds me of the way that think about professional boxing or professional wrestling, the way that people are announced as they're coming in. So a uh, little window into my soul, uh, into my life. When I was growing up, I was a fan of what they used to call the WWF, the Worldwide Wrestling Federation. Um, I'm going to put a picture up here of my favorite wrestlers, and you're going to immediately see why I was so impressed with these two. But here they are. Sean Gennetti and... Wait, Shawn Michaels and Marty Jannetty, the rockers, or they used to be called the Midnight Rockers, and they would just jump off the ropes and fly and do all sorts of amazing things, and boy, was I impressed. And, and why, why not? Why not be impressed with those guys? Um, but I want you to picture with me what happens at the beginning of a, a wrestling match like this, or even a professional boxing match. The, the people are coming in from their locker room. The, there's two different sides, whether it's a one-on-one -on -one or a two-on-two. -two. The, first, the, the first two come out, and the announcer, there's loud music blaring, and the announcer says, and in this corner, weighing in at 200 pounds with a record of 25-0, and zero, the Midnight Rockers! And it just the place goes wild. And, uh, yeah, I know, I spent a little bit too much time doing that, but... Uh, <laughs> And then, you know, they might list all of their nicknames and all of their accomplishments. And then when they're done coming in, it's the same thing for the other side. And in this corner, and they say the same types of things for the people coming. And then there's that famous guy who stands in the middle of the ring between the two of them. And say it with me. Let's get ready to rumble. All right, thank you. Thank you for indulging me a little bit. Oh, man. Am I going to... I put these sermons on the internet. What am I doing here? Just, uh, <laughs> let's get that picture off. Okay. Uh, our passage today is set up like a battle. And in some ways, it's kind of like that. It's the, and in this corner we have, and it's Jesus and the people with him. And then we have, in the other corner, and it's the enemies of God. And then, in a couple of verses, the battle is described. So that's where we're going today. We're going to look at the combatants in this battle, and then we're going to take a look at the battle itself. So Revelation 19, we're going to start off by looking at verses 11 through 16, which I'd like to read for you now. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse, whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. 
He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So in these verses we get lots of descriptions of who Jesus is. In verse 11 we see that he's riding a white horse and that he's called faithful and true. And, and those are names that, have, that Jesus has been called before. He is faithful, meaning that he always has been faithful to what his Father has for him. And he's called true because he only deals in truth. And these two words, by the way, are, are great examples for us to follow. May we be faithful to all that God has for us. May we be true in all that we do and say. And then it goes on to say of Jesus there, with justice he judges and makes war. And again, like I've been saying throughout this Revelation series, this is an important theme that God will judge. Evil will be called evil and it will be punished. And that's good news because if there's no punishment for evil, then it makes us wonder if evil really is evil. But there is a day of reckoning. Now, I, I just wonder, do any of you out there, have you ever asked the question, I hope you've asked this question, and I hope you have an answer for it, but do you ever feel like God allows too much evil? Have you ever wondered why there's so much evil in this world? Well, one of the great answers that we have in the Bible is that there will be a day. Evil will get its just rewards. There will be punishment for the wicked. There will be justice. It will happen at the second coming of Jesus. Moving on to verse 12, we see that Jesus' eyes are like blazing fire. That's a description that we've seen of him earlier in the book. And then it also says that on his head are many crowns. Now, it's interesting because in the book of Revelation, the same word crowns is used for Satan in chapter 12. He had crowns on his head. And the beast of chapter 13 also had crowns on their heads. But what's important to know is that their authority is very limited and it will not last for long. Jesus, on the other hand, is the rightful king of kings, and his kingdom will never end. He will always reign as king. And then I love how it says here, he has a name written on himself, written on him that no one knows but he himself. Isn't this kind of neat that there are things about Jesus that we don't know right now? There will be things about Jesus, I think, that we will learn about him as we meet him in eternity. So I think it's kind of neat that there's this, this secret name of Jesus. It reminds us of the unsearchability of God. And it, I think it gives us something to look forward to as we think about eternity. And moving on to verse 13, we see that Jesus is dressed in a robe dipped in blood. And there's two possibilities as to why he's, this robe is dipped in blood, and I'm not exactly sure which one, so those of you counting at home, um, this is one of many times in Revelation where I don't know exactly what the imagery means. The two possibilities, one is that it's his own blood, and if so, it's a reminder of what Jesus did for us dying on the cross. He shed his blood for us, and it's very possible that this is a reminder of that. The other option is that this is the blood of his enemies. We read about in chapter 14 that there was going to be, uh, that the enemies were going to be trampled in a wine press. And we read here in chapter 19 that it is Jesus who treads the wine press. So it's possible that this is kind of a word picture of the blood of 
his enemies being spattered. Um, like I said, I guess I don't exactly know, but what we do know later on in verse 13, we see this title for Jesus, the Word of God. It's a really important title. It's one that has been... Uh, it's, it's throughout the pages of Scripture we see the importance of the Word of God, and here it's given to Jesus as a title. So let's, let's think about this title for a little bit. The Word of God, what's the significance of it? Well... Remember back to Genesis 1, the repeated phrase there? I know you, know you all know it. I'll just give you one example of it. In Genesis 1-3 it says, And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. Our universe came into existence because God spoke it. His word is so powerful that it can create the cosmos. So there, there's power in the word of God there. And then also God has revealed truth to us in his word, the Bible. Um, oh, one more before that actually in John 1.1 1, 1, uh, Jesus is called the word this is an important verse especially as we're thinking about the Trinity and as we're thinking about the eternality of Jesus it says in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God if you were to look ahead to chapter 14 in that chapter you would see very clearly that the word is Jesus so Jesus is the word of God he was with God in the beginning and he was God and I and he still is God. Let's continue, though, with this theme of the Word of God, and let's see what Scripture says about Scripture. I think this is kind of a, a fascinating topic. There, these are things that we should know, by the way. I was watching an interview with Josh McDowell earlier this week. Many of you know that name. He said that uh, too many Christians don't have good reasons for why they believe that the Bible is the Word of God. Well, let's, let's look at a couple here. In John 12:48, this one has to do with the power of the word of God. Jesus said, There is a judge for the one who rejects me and does not accept my words. That very word which I spoke will condemn him at the last day. So Jesus is speaking here about the power of the word of God, and he says, if you don't believe it, it's going to come back and haunt you on judgment day because you will be judged by it. And I, I think this is fascinating. We have two choices here. That either we submit to the word of God, or like it talks about here, we'd be judged or condemned by it. Let's look at what Jesus said in another place about Scripture. I love this one. In John 10.35, Jesus said, Scripture cannot be broken. Remember, by the time that Jesus came to earth in, in human form, there was already what we call the Old Testament in place. So Jesus, speaking about Old Testament Scripture, he did not say, oh yeah, some of that stuff is kind of weird or you should just skip over it. No, he didn't say that. He said, Scripture cannot be broken. So this is Jesus, God the Son. His view of Scripture is that it can't be broken. Think how different that is than what other people say today. You ever heard people say, well, it's, it's just man-made. There's got to be errors in it. Think of how many times it's been uh, transmitted and translated. There must be errors. Well, what did Jesus say? Scripture cannot be broken. If that's his view of Scripture, that's what I want my view of Scripture to be. And then one more. This is one of my favorite verses in the Bible, about the Bible. Jesus was praying in John 17, 17. He said, Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. So Jesus is praying to the Father for his followers, including us. And he asked his Father to make us holy by God's word of truth. So think about the importance of God's word in your life. It's the power of God 
spoke the universe into existence. It's the name given to Jesus himself, and it is that which will make you holy as you submit to it. So what kind of people should we be? We should be people of the book. That was a, I think that that name was kind of given as a derogatory name for some people at some times throughout history. But let's wear that one. Let's, let's be people of the book who continue not just to read God's word, not just to listen to it, but to submit to it and to do what it says. So I just want to urge you again to, as a regular practice of your life, to be reading and submitting to God's word. There is great power in it. Okay, well let's move on to verse 14 from here. This uh, excuse me, verse 14, where we talk about the armies of heaven. Who are these armies of heaven? Well, again, there's two possibilities here, and this time I'm actually going to give you an answer, okay? Um, first possibility is that this could be angels. It would make sense for them to be called the armies of heaven. They're servants who do God's bidding. Uh, the second possibility could be God's people, because in, in the book of Revelation, oftentimes God's people are described this way as having white clothes, that is, robes that have been washed by the blood of Jesus and made white. Now my guess is that the armies of heaven is both of them. That at the second coming, Jesus is coming both with his angels and with his people leading this battle. Then verse 15. I want to read this one again. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. When I read this verse this week, I was stopped in my tracks. I was, I was just thinking, what must it be like for the Creator who made the nations, who, who created the people, to now come with wrath, to strike them down, to rule them with an iron scepter, to tread them in the winepress of the fury of God's wrath? Why? Why would this have to happen to the people that, that God created and loved. Remember, most famous verse in the Bible, John 3.16, how does God view the world? For God so loved the world. So why here, at the end of the book, do we get punishment? Well, one of the themes of Revelation, we have to understand this one, is that God gives time to repent. Over and over we have seen that in the book of Revelation. God has given time to repent, and you can just simply think about it this way. It's been almost 2,000 years since Jesus came and, and died and rose from the dead. Ever since then, God's message for us here on earth has been that we should repent. God has been very patient. But too often, whether it's in the book of Revelation or whether we see it around us or even in our own lives, all too often, people don't repent. The theologian Grant Osborne says it this way, We must remember the number of times in the book God has offered them forgiveness if they were to repent, yet they again and again refused and preferred to worship the very demons who hated them. You see, I think that God would rather forgive the repentant than condemn the wicked. So what I'm talking about here is there are there are two ways that God will respond to the people that he has created. One is to forgive those who repent, and the other is to condemn those who won't repent. And I like to say that that's plan A and plan B. And don't misunderstand me. I'm not suggesting that God has a plan B because he wasn't powerful enough to carry out his plan A. That's not it at all. God's plan A is that we would repent. 
And if so, He will rescue us from death. But if we refuse to repent, God has told us many, many, many times that He will bring about wrath. So the reason that we see this wrath here is because of the stubborn refusal of people to repent. One of, one of the verses I like on this is 2 Peter 3, 9b. It says, He, the Lord, is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Yet God will strike down the nations if they refuse him. It says that in, back in Revelation 19.15. And it goes on to quote from Psalm 2. The quote there, He will rule them with an iron scepter, is from Psalm 2. You might want to read Psalm 2 today and just take some time to stop and meditate on it. It's a fascinating psalm. In that psalm, it says that the, the nations conspire together against God. In that psalm, eventually God says, I have established my king, yet the nations are conspiring against them. And in a little bit of humor, what's God's response to those people who conspire and rage against him? He laughs at them. He's already installed his king. There can be no other king. There can be no successful coup attempt on the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So the way that Psalm 2 ends is with a warning. Be wise, you kings. Be warned, you people of the earth. There's a warning in there that the wrath of God can flare up. And then the very last line in Psalm 2, I love this. Listen to this one. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So in Psalm 2, you either rage against the king or you take refuge in him. And then getting back to Revelation 19, you're going to see you don't want to rage against him. We'll see the battle here shortly. One other thing I want to point out about uh, Psalm 2, if you're going to read that today. In Psalm 2, one of the things it says in there is to serve the Lord, to fear him, and to rejoice in him. And there is what I see as this theme of worship, the, the theme that we've been talking about in Revelation. The proper response to our king is to worship him, to give him the glory that he deserves. Instead of raging against God's son, we should submit to him. Again, otherwise his wrath might flare up. But then let's move on to verse 16. On his robe and on his thigh he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Here's a really important description of Jesus. This one, I mean, this one just jumps out the page at you. King of kings and Lord of lords. It describes who he is and how we should rightly think of him. Now, the Bible is very clear that there is only one God. We now know that one God to exist in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Somehow, one God. Now, there may be other kings with a lowercase k, and there may be other lords with a lowercase l, but there is only one king of kings and lord of lords. And in many ways, this idea of kingship gets at the heart of, of what it means for us to follow Jesus. We are all attempted to assume, we're tempted to assume that we are the ones who are in control of our lives. So if, if we think about there's a driver's seat in our life, we like to think that that should be us. If there's a throne in our heart, we like to think that that's our throne. We are all tempted to live as if we were the ones who have sovereign control over our lives and we just get to live how we want to. We've all been there. We're all tempted with that on a daily basis to pretend that we have the right to make the decisions in our lives according to what we want. Every time 
though we reject God's ways and go on the path of our own choosing, we fail to acknowledge God's rightful authority as our King and as our Lord. So what we should do is we should submit to him as servants, recognize that that driver's seat and that throne were not made for us. God desires for us to live a certain way, and he has every right, by the way, as our Lord, to ask us to live a certain way. He created us, he loves us, he has good plans for us. We should submit to him. Will we do it? Well, in Revelation 19, apparently some people will because there's these armies that are following after him into the battle. It's Jesus and his followers. But there's another side to this battle now. So let's move to the and in this corner part of Revelation 19. I want to read verses 17 through 19. And I saw an angel standing in the sun who cried in a loud voice to tell uh, to all the birds flying in midair, Come, gather together for the great supper of God so that you may eat the flesh of kings, generals, and mighty men, of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all people, free and slaves, small and great. Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against the rider on the horse and his army. So before we get into the description of who the enemy combatants are, first an angel talks to the birds and basically says, get your bibs on, birds, there's going to be a feast. And the reason there's going to be a feast is because there's going to be a battle, and they're not going to win it. Um, the language here in Revelation 19 picks up on the language from Ezekiel 39, which is, by the way, if you didn't know this, a lot of the imagery in Revelation comes from the Old Testament. Here it's from a battle in Ezekiel 39 where the birds get to feast on the flesh of those who lose the battle. It's often been said of Revelation 19 that there are two feasts that you can be a part of. The first one is the one that we saw last Sunday, back in verse 9 of this chapter. It talks about the wedding supper of the Lamb. Think about that. In Jesus Christ, we can be invited to a wedding feast with him. That sounds amazing to me. I bet the food is going to be really awesome there, and the company is going to be even better. That's one feast that you could be part of. The other feast that you could be a part of would be the birds eating your flesh if you refuse Jesus. So, um, so I, I heard one theologian who said, Revelation 19, eat or be eaten. That's, that's the story here. But who are these enemy combatants who will end up getting eaten by the birds? Well, in verse 18, they're described there as kings and generals and mighty men and horses and their riders, all people, free and slave, small and great. But why do people come to battle against Jesus? Well, we're told why in chapter 16. In that chapter, um, these demonic spirits that look like frogs come out of the mouth of Satan and the beast and the false prophet, and they go to deceive the people to lead them into battle. And like I said when I preached through that chapter, if a frog-like demon ever asks you to battle against God, don't do it. That should be one of the most obvious things ever, but don't do it. But some people do. In verse 19 of our passage today, people are gathered for battle against Jesus. And then we will see very quickly what happens to them. So we've got the in this corner and in this corner, and now it's the let's get ready to rumble time. Verses 20 through 21. But the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who had performed the miraculous signs on his behalf. With these signs he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. The rest of them were killed with the sword that came out of the mouth of the rider on the horse, 
and all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. Now it doesn't say anything about anybody jumping off the top ring or top rope and hitting a chair on their back, but uh, I don't know if that's going to be part of it. But, but in what happens to appear almost instantly, the, the beast and the false prophet are captured. It says of this false prophet that he deluded the people. That word means deceived. The false prophet, unlike Jesus, deals in lies. So following Satan's lead, the false prophet is trying to get people not to worship Jesus, but to worship the beast. And again, this is one of the reasons why I'm saying that worship is the main theme in the book of Revelation. Satan's plan is to deceive people, not into worshiping Jesus, but into worshiping the beast. We're supposed to worship Jesus, so what does he do? He tries to get them to do the exact opposite and to worship this beast. Let this be a reminder to us that we should only worship God. That's, that's what our lives should be taken with. Not just the songs we sing, but our whole lives lived for God, doing what he wants us to do. But as punishment for their wickedness, God throws both the beast and the false prophet into this fiery lake of burning sulfur. We'll see that fiery lake again in chapter 20. It's where Satan is thrown. And then also we're told at the end of chapter 20 that all whose names aren't written in the book of life will be thrown into that lake of fire as well. And, and again, something should be really obvious to us here. You don't want to go there. It is the place of eternal torment for Satan and any who follow him. And God, in holy justice, will send people there if they are not with Jesus. Because it's those who are with Jesus whose names are written in the book of life. This language is meant to confront us. And then finally in verse 21, the rest of them were killed with the sword that came out of the mouth of the rider. Any who come in battle against Jesus will be killed. And then the birds get their feast. And, and it's kind of comical how quickly this happens, isn't it? You get this long description of Jesus and the armies with him, and then this little bit shorter description of the enemies, and all of a sudden, boom, the battle's over. There's, there's no victory for any who set themselves up against Jesus. And then just a quick note about verse 21. Um, in chapter 20, we're going to see another battle, and, and people have often wondered, I, I don't get it, there's a battle here where everybody loses, then in chapter 20 we see another battle. So how are there any people left to be in the battle in chapter 20 if they were all defeated in chapter 19? Well, I think the best way to understand this battle in chapter 19 is that it's only those unbelievers who, who gathered for battle. Th there may be some other unbelievers who are like, wait a second, I don't want to go into that battle. And then their demise will come in chapter 20. This is how the King of Kings and Lord of Lords will win this battle. Okay, but what's the point? Why, why do we have this story in the Bible? Why is it told to us this way? Well, one obvious one is, again, you don't want to be on the wrong side. And I just want to urge you to think about that. Th it may feel like we're talking about science fiction here, but we are talking about a real event that will happen sometime, even possibly in the near future. And you do not, do not want to be on the wrong side of that battle. So how can we know if we'll be on the right side of the battle? Well, we will be on the right side if we align ourselves with the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Either we go his way or our way. So often the Bible talks about two paths. One path is the path that God has for us, and the other path is any other way that we would go. 
the path of life is the one in which we recognize that Jesus is King and Lord. And like I said earlier, it's so easy for us to go through this life assuming that we are the King or the Queen or the Lord of our own life. And it might sound ridiculous to, when you're sitting here in a sermon to think about it, but I want you to think about just how often in your life, and I'll think about this for my life, how often we have chose the wrong way and acted as if we were the king or lord of our own life. That's the deception that Satan wants us to believe. But we were not created to run the show. Jesus is lord, and we are not. Okay? That should be like the, the first, you know, like in the AA meetings where you say, hi, my name is blank, and I'm an alcoholic. This should be what we say. My name is Eric, and I am not Lord. Jesus is. If you want to be with him, you should recognize him as King and Lord. That means submitting your life to him, giving your life to him by faith to follow him forever. And if you have never done so, it means you should do it now. Confess your sins to him. Admit to him that you have gone on your own path but that you now recognize that it's wrong. Ask Him to forgive your sins and He will cleanse you. That's why He came the first time, to cleanse you, to forgive you. But if you have never done so yet, if you haven't given your life to Jesus, just talk to Him now and ask Him to join, if you can join His side by receiving Him as Savior and Lord. But then for those of us who have already received Jesus as King and Lord, I want to I talk to you now. What does this passage mean for us? Obviously, there's this idea of, well, we should give our lives to Jesus. But for those of us that have already done that, what does it mean? Well, let me put this phrase up here, and I want to leave it on for the rest of the sermon here, which is coming to a a close. If Jesus is your King and Lord, live like it. If Jesus is your King and Lord, live like it. Remember the deception of the false prophet? It was to get people to worship the beast. That should stand as a reminder for us that we should only worship God. He alone is worthy of worship. Don't settle for worshiping anything or anyone else. He alone deserves the glory. Now that means living your whole life for Him, following Him. That means acknowledging that we shouldn't just go how we want to go in life. So part of our worship means going His way. It means seeking Him. That that means getting to know him in his word and asking him how you should go. And it means doing that on a Tuesday morning or on a Wednesday night or whenever it is that you're met with this idea of two paths and one is yours and the other is God. Worship means to submit to God and to go the way that he has for you. Now, for those of you who have been coming to Cornerstone for a while, this is not a new teaching. Many of you in here have heard me say many times that we should know Jesus as Lord. But I was thinking about that again this week, and I feel like my job is to continue to remind you that we should submit to Jesus Christ as Lord. And I want to I remind you of that by telling you a little bit of my story. And I've, I've, shared, I've shared parts of this story several times here, but I want to focus in on this issue of what it means that Jesus is Lord. Okay, so for me, I was about 15 years old. I heard the gospel message that Jesus Christ is Lord, that he died on the cross for my sins, and that I could receive complete forgiveness if I asked him into my heart to be my Savior and my Lord. And I was thrilled to hear that message. I was thrilled to hear that I could have a a 24-hour-a-day relationship with Jesus Christ in which he is Lord. But at the same time, I was a little bit concerned 
And, and don't misunderstand, I was thrilled at the gospel message, but I was also a little bit concerned at what that might do to my life if I gave control to him, because I recognized that what I was about to do was to give my life over to him, and I thought, wait a second, there are plans of mine that I have. And then I also thought, wait a second, there are things that he might ask me to do that I don't want to do. And chief among them, and I, I've shared this here before, my number one concern was that God was going to make me be a missionary in Africa. So here I was, as a 15-year-old, thinking, boy, am I a sinner and I need Jesus to forgive my sins and I don't want to go to hell forever? Yes. But I also am not sure what my life would look like if I gave it to Jesus. And in that moment, I remember thinking, I have two choices. One is to go with God into whatever he leads me into, and the other is to reject God and go my own way. And I knew that that wasn't the right path to take. So I gave my life to Jesus. Whatever it is you have for me, God. Now believe me, since then, I have messed up many, many, many times. There have been lots of times where I have probably not done what God has wanted me to do, um, or done what God has not wanted me to do. But there's forgiveness in that. And, and again, the, the way that we should go is if we ever find ourselves going away from God, that we just repent quickly and come back to him. But here's one of the ways I like to think about this. I want to encourage you to think about it this way. If you had to receive Jesus as Lord again today, would you do it? Would you confess again today that Jesus Christ is Lord and that you are not, and that you want to go his way and not your way? I think that's what it means for us to look at the, these words that jump off the page, not just because they're in all capital letters in the translation that I read, but Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords. Will you submit your whole life to him to follow him? Will you recognize that the path of your own choosing, although it looks tempting to us, and there are things on that path that we might think would be very good and pleasing for us, will you recognize that the best path for you is the one where Jesus is Lord and where you follow him? By faith. You see, if Jesus is Lord, it means that we should not only give our lives to him to receive salvation, but like it says in our benediction verse, that we should continue to live with him. It says, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in him. How, did we, how are we supposed to receive him as Lord? Giving our whole life to him. I want you to think about that. To receive Jesus as Lord is to give your whole life to him. Well, fast forward 24 years later or whatever it is for you, are you living your whole life for him? If he was Lord then, if you were banking on that for your salvation, is he Lord of your life today? Are you living your life in such a way as to worship him with every decision you make? Will you confess with me again that Jesus is Lord? Will you confess with me again that Jesus is King? And if he's King and Lord, then there's no room for us to pretend that we are in control of our own lives. May we live lives of worship to our King and Lord, following him by faith into whatever he has for us. Will you pray with me? God, we come before you and we confess again, or whether for the first time or whether for however many times it's been for us, we confess that Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords. God, we acknowledge that all too often we have followed our own path. Please forgive us for that. We pray that you would strengthen us to walk with you by faith. That we, as an act of worship, would 
continue to submit our lives to you, following you wherever you lead us. God, may we do that to give you glory. And as we do that, would you continue to remind us that that's the best life for us, the life where we get to do with you, where Jesus is King and Lord. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.